This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. All right, so welcome to our podcast um, in MyHeart.net on our cardio-oncology series. And today we're going to discuss heart disease and childhood cancer survivors. And, and with me, we have uh, two very special guests. We have Dr. Wendy Botner, who is adjunct assistant professor of medicine at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. And we have Dr. Carrie Lenneman, who is associate professor of medicine at the University of Alabama here in Birmingham. So uh, thank you very much for participating in our podcast. Great. Thank you for having us. So we know that the field of cardio-oncology has exploded uh, just in recent years, and as the number of um, childhood cancer survivors just continue to grow. Uh, today, we'll try to discuss, maybe we'll look at some of the data on, on the um, childhood cancers. We'll also, uh, we're going to look at what are the cardiovascular complications. Uh, we're going to see uh, if we can predict maybe these complications, and particularly important, we're going to finish by how to prevent them. So let's get started. And uh, uh, Wendy, could I ask you, uh, what do we know about uh, childhood cancer survivorship? Yeah, that's a great place to start, Elaine. I think, you know, um, really survivorship and this concept of survivorship after cancer really started with childhood cancer survivors. And if you look back historically, um, a lot of this data and concerns about health during survivorship started, you know, somewhere around roughly the 1970s or so. Um, and probably around the 1990s, give or take, um, is when St. Jude's started to develop the um childhood survivorship study cohort. And that really has been a really um, valuable resource for us to kind of understand what the survivors experience as they go forward through life. Um, we now, you know, just as a quick aside, recognize that survivorship isn't a concept that's exclusive to childhood cancer survivors. It also involves adolescent and young adult survivors, which um, by the current NCI definitions would cover anyone diagnosed with cancer at 39 or younger. And we're really starting to recognize that issues come up in survivorship, even for people who are diagnosed with cancer above that age. But um, the initial recognition of this field really was in childhood cancer survivors. And so what we've developed over the past few decades is an understanding that um, unfortunately, when someone is cured of cancer, that is not the end of their story. It's not like they finish therapy and that chapter of their life story is closed. Really, that becomes a part of their story that is carried forward throughout the rest of their life. And it's carried forward in a variety of ways. Some of it is um, physical health issues, um, which is part of what we'll focus on today. But it also um, has factors on um, cognitive function, mental health, emotional health, um, educational status, um, socioeconomic attainment. So it really um, winds up permeating um, almost every aspect of a survivor's life. And, you know, we know that because of the success of our colleagues in oncology, really over 85% or so of childhood cancer survivors will be alive at five years. 
and the overwhelming majority are going to survive into adulthood. And so I think with that recognition and our now historical understanding of the issues that can come up, we're in a great position to start to focus on survivorship and how to be proactive and help our survivors. That's great. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, Carrie, could we get into maybe some of the cardiovascular complications that we see in, in childhood cancer survivors? Yes, I mean, as Wendy said, I mean, these survivors um, are unfortunately suffering significant cardiovascular disease that can um, begin as early as um, a few years after treatment. Probably the most common treatment abnormality that we see in these individuals may be valvular disease. Um, that's mostly related to their history of um, radiation. And our technology with radiation is getting better, but we know many of our patients who had mantle cell or chest radiation in the even in the 80s um, and 90s can have significant valvular disease and require valve replacement at some time. Probably next after that, the most significant um, cardiovascular complication that we see in individuals is heart failure. Some studies looking at, um, depending on what study you look at, it can affect almost 10% of cancer survivors um, by the time they hit um, their mid-40s. So that's a significant um, concern, a significant um, effect and morbidity on these individuals. So um, valvular disease, heart failure, ischemic heart disease, coronary disease, probably the third most common cause of cardiovascular issues in these individuals. And then after that, it can be significant arrhythmias or even autonomic dysfunction, which I find in a lot of my patients. Um, and that actually is just very disabling to individuals. Uh, may not be significantly causing alterations in their life expectancy, but is very disabling to these individuals. So I'd say kind of first valvular heart disease, then heart failure, um, then ischemic heart disease. And then we start looking at different things like arrhythmias and autonomic um, dysfunction. Wendy, is there a way to predict who's going to develop what complication? So there has been some work done in that area. Um, we certainly know that there are certain risk factors, for example, being younger at age of diagnosis, certain therapies. So we've recognized for quite a while now that radiation therapy, particularly radiation to the chest or anthracycline-based chemotherapy can be risk factors. Gender can play a role. And also there's some data that unfortunately minority individuals are at higher risk than their white counterparts. Um, so there certainly are some risk factors. There also have been um, some attempts to delve into the genetic aspect of this and use that approach to um, further understand ahead of time who's at higher risk. Similarly, there has been work by a couple of groups, including Eric Chow's group at St. Jude, where they have actually used this childhood cancer survivor cohort that I mentioned to develop um, a risk prediction calculator. Um, and actually, that's available freely to anyone on their website and something that I often use in clinic with patients just to help provide a more concrete context to what their risks are. So what are the elements uh, that are included in this um, predictor model? So the predictor model will include a couple of factors. A lot of it has to do with the different chemotherapies that someone received. So whether they received anthracycline therapy, whether they received alkylating agents, and if the person has available treatment records so that you know total doses, it will actually take that into account as well. 
radiation exposure too is important in that calculator. Um, but it, like Wendy was saying, some, some patients don't know their exact amount of um, radiation or chemo, but if you can extract that, that does help give better discriminatory value to that risk prediction model, which is very helpful. The other thing the risk prediction model looks at is their current comorbidities. So for example, it will say in there, do you take medicine for high blood pressure? Do you take medicine for, you know, cholesterol issues? And that that actually is how I often use it with patients because I use that as a talking point to explain that, you know, it's when they ask that question, it's not the fact that you're taking a medicine for blood pressure that causes the risk. It's not the medication, the antihypertensive medication, right? They're using that question to identify someone who has significant enough hypertension to need medication. And so it's that factor that's really the important part of it. And so for me, um, a lot of times I use this calculator as a springboard for having a conversation about cardiovascular risk factor reduction. Sounds good. So as cardiologists, as we see these patients that are coming to us now in the adult you know, cardiology uh, field, what can we do to prevent complications of heart failure or coronary artery disease? Carrie? Yeah, I think um, Wendy really has, has touched on this, like really trying to engage the patient about their underlying risk factors and really work hard on lifestyle modifications. If we can ward off that development of diabetes or hypertension or even hyperlipidemia, we can really impact um, and reduce their cardiovascular disease going forward. Um, so I think Wendy brings up a great point. You know, if you can just let patients know how much an effect you know, hypertension or diabetes has on changing their percent risk over time for cardiovascular disease is a significant um, tool. So engaging patients, letting them know how important, knowing their blood pressure numbers, knowing their lipids, um, knowing what their A1C is, is really important. And also engaging them to make um, lifestyle changes. We can hand out medicines, but there are also certain things like, you know, good, healthy diet and physical activity, which are just as important as a, you know, as a prescription that we can hand patients. So educating them, what are the physical activity goals? You know, 150 minutes of moderate physical activity per week is, you know, a good good guideline for our patients. And we really should be encouraging patients and helping them figure out how to carve that out, even in their busy lifestyle. And even in, in for our childhood survivors, you know, physical activity is harder. As we've talked about, when you can look at different studies, looking at a, a patient's um, VO2 max, the ability of what they're able to do on exercise, there's great data out there. Um, Lee Jones has got a lot of data in adults, but there's also very good data in the children as well that cancer survivors cannot achieve the same physical activity and VO2 that a normal um, that a normal patient can who's not been exposed to um, chemo or radiation. So you, you also have to let patients know it's normal that you may be more tired or fatigued, but you know still trying to hit those important metrics of um, 150 minutes of moderate or 75 minutes um, per week of vigorous activity are sort of the, still the cornerstone guidelines on how we can minimize cardiovascular disease in these patients. Carrie, you touched on so many important points there. Um, you know, one thing just to kind of reemphasize what you were saying about cardiovascular risk factors, there was a study from St. Jude that came out in the early 2010s that I often reflect on um, because what they looked at that in that study was the uh, essentially the interaction between cancer therapy and cardiovascular risk factors. And, you know, I, I'm far from a statistician, but one of the things they did in that paper was they calculated 
calculated something called a relative excess risk, um, which essentially was their way of screening for whether two factors had an adverse synergistic relationship. And so they explain in the paper that, you know, if an any um, relative excess risk greater than zero shows that there's a synergistic or additive effect between these two factors. And when you look at, for example, chest radiation and hypertension or anthracycline therapy and hypertension, the relative excess risk for those factors was over 40. So that's one of the things I always explain to my patients. I say, you know, hypertension is bad for anybody, but particularly for someone who is a survivor of cancer, it's actually even worse than it is for the general population. And so that's why it's so important that we be proactive and treat these factors. The other thing is that um, there's this recognition that cancer survivors tend to um, develop these risk factors at a younger age than um, their, the general cohorts of populations, right? So if you look at survivors when they're 50 and you compare them to the general population, the incidence of things like hypertension, hyperlipidemia is roughly double in survivors than it is in the general population. So, you know, they're at higher risk for developing these risk factors and when they do, the impact on their overall health is much more profound than it is for folks who don't have that cancer history. Um, the other thing you pointed out was the limitations in physical activity. And I was just thinking about this the other day and um, reviewing some studies that had shown that the six-minute walk test actually can be a reasonable surrogate for a CPAT in this population, you know, because it's really tough when we're asking these folks, come to clinic, come get cardiac imaging. Oh, and also please go get a CPAT. You have to figure out where to draw the line on some of these things. And so I've been considering with some of my folks, should I add a CPAT or excuse me, a six minute walk test as one of the things we do during our first meeting together to get an assessment of what their physical activity is and like you mentioned, you know, there in general, physical activity is not what it would be in the general population. When folks have done six-minute walk tests, usually survivors are somewhere in the 30th or below percentile compared to what would be anticipated for their age, et cetera. Um, so it's a significant issue that, you know, hopefully we can come up with more creative ways to address. When you see these patients in the clinic, and it looks like you've, you focus a lot on primary prevention, um, are you pretty uh, aggressive in documenting, you know, whether they're at risk? For example, uh, for the echo, do you get like a, um, a global strain echo? Do you get 3D echo? Do you get a cardiac MRI? Someone who's a cancer survivor, do you get a calcium score to try to detect coronary disease early? How aggressive uh, are you in your, in your workup of these patients? Oh, that question makes me so excited. <laughs> so let me um, provide a little bit of background. So part of the reason I became interested in this field is because, and this population in particular, meaning childhood cancer survivors, is because there are standardized guidelines that are followed in terms of how survivorship should be approached. And so in the U.S., most people follow the Children's Oncology Group guidelines. Their most recent guidelines came out in 2018. And based on that, um, in people who have 
been exposed to anthracyclines and or chest radiation, depending on the doses, they should get cardiac screening every two or every five years. And in those guidelines, and in general, you know, the approach is to get echoes. Cardiac MRI is thought primarily to be kind of a second line agent, kind of just in standard practice and how people think. When I get echoes, yes, I always ask for strain. A lot of times when I am thinking about strain, I'm extrapolating from other populations. So one of the great examples that I think we now have is from Tom Marwick's group and the SUCOR study. Now, this is a different population. These are adults who are undergoing active therapy for an adult onset malignancy. But in this study, what they did was randomize people to serial surveillance where either a decline in LVEF was the trigger for starting cardiac medications or in the other arm, a decline in global longitudinal strain was the trigger for starting cardiac medications. And what they found was that at the end of a year, the individuals who were recognized, who were randomized to the global longitudinal strain trigger had a decline in EF of about 3% versus roughly 9% in the LVEF trigger group. And they came up with a relative risk reduction of over 50, and the number needed to treat was, I want to say 13, it was under 15. So I cite that a lot when I'm thinking about what is going to be the most effective strategy with ECHO. And I do request strain when I'm, when I'm doing that. The other thing to consider is instead of just doing a Simpsons biplane to consider a 3D EF, and I'll request that as well. I think that can be helpful, but I think that topic is a nice segue into the next thing you mentioned, which is cardiac MRI. So there has been some data to show that um, the kind of inherent imprecisions of echocardiography can present a problem when you're trying to follow a survivorship population serially. Right. And so one example of that would be I keep thinking about data from St. Jude's, but they did a study again where this was through their St. Jude Life cohort, where they basically did a cross sectional study, pulled in a group of survivors, and did cardiac testing on them. And they found that ECHO overestimated LVEF by at least 5%. And at the end of this paper, what they suggested is that for survivors who are kind of in this intermediate range on an echo between 50 and 59, that an MRI is probably appropriate because the inherent imprecisions of echo are probably too large when you're dealing with that narrow range and trying to determine whether someone has cardiomyopathy or not. So I I actually think personally that no one imaging modality is adequate. I think the advantage of the echo is you get strain. It's a great way for screening for valvular disease, which like Carrie mentioned, is one is probably the most common issue that comes up in survivors. And then I think the MRI offers you the advantage of a more precise LVEF. And so specifically in that gray zone where you're not sure if the precision of echo is adequate, it's helpful there. I think the other thing it offers you is a better assessment of biventricular function. And there's certainly been good data to support that um, 
chemotherapy related cardiotoxicity is more often a biventricular issue than other types of of cardiomyopathy. And then it also gives you an opportunity to look at things like LV mass in a way that personally I feel is more precise than echo. And again, extrapolating from another population, but LV mass, this was work from Tom Nealon's group, and this was an adult population, but they showed that an LV mass, an indexed LV mass under 57 was associated with adverse cardiovascular outcomes over the next two years. So when I get an MRI, I always ask for LVEF, RVEF, LV mass. And then the last thing I look at is um, ECVF or the extracellular volume fraction. And the reason I do that is, you know, we all have probably appreciated that when we look for things like delayed enhancement on an MRI in survivors, it's very rare, or at least in my experience, it's very rare that you find that. And it's been postulated that part of the reason that we don't find the delayed enhancement is because it's a diffuse process. And so you don't have this um, normal myocardium to then compare to the abnormal myocardium all of it is mildly abnormal. And so I think in that sense, you know, you're, you're kind of better off doing your tissue characterization with maps and measures of extracellular volume fraction to help with that. And then the third thing you were talking about was coronary artery calcium scoring. And I think that also is helpful. And actually there's been some recent publications on utilizing this And actually also just utilizing CT data, right? So sometimes survivors are getting surveillance scans through their oncology providers. And there's certainly been an argument that we as cardiologists should look at those scans or at the very least review them to see, is there a mention of atherosclerotic disease? Because certainly the ASCVD risk calculator probably underestimates the true cardiovascular risk in someone who is a survivor. And so looking at CT scans, um, which, you know, are already there, existing data can be, I think, pretty helpful in um, determining who would benefit from statin or not. And then, yeah, for those intermediate cases, I think coronary artery calcium scoring is also very appropriate. Carrie, do you have anything to add? Uh, did a very phenomenal job summarizing that, but I'll echo two things um, that she mentioned is that we know that a lot of these cancer survivors, especially if they've been treated with anthracyclines, they do have more BIV function. As we've looked at data sets from um, patients who have gone on to have uh, transplant, it's pretty clear that these patients had to be transplanted because they had BIV failure. And actually, um, when we looked at some of this transplant data in the past, we saw a lot of these patients had to be supported with an RVAD before they went on to, um, to have their actual uh, transplant. So like we said, it's a global process. It's not just the LV. We give a lot of attention to the LV, but we should also think about the RV as well because it is very global. And also, I think I want to just kind of echo the point that the ASCVD score, which we all kind of use in our everyday clinic, totally underestimates our cancer survivors all, including children and, you know, our normal, you know, breast cancer, prostate cancer patient we see in clinic. So we need to be more mindful of that and probably more aggressive in all of our cardio-oncology patients. 
And um, lastly, I do agree. I probably get more consults nowadays on in my cardio oncology clinic because staging scans show an individual has coronary um, calcium and like, what do we do with that? They're asymptomatic. Um, and so depending on how significant it looks, and I will say, not having been a radiologist or not really paying much attention to that as, as an intern and as a resident, I will say as it became a fellow. And now I look at so many CT scans to look for coronary calcification. It, it is very interesting. We get, get a lot of data from that. And I use that to, again, engage my patients and say, look, you've got some coronary calcification. Let's be aggressive with those risk factors. Let's make sure we're hitting our activity physical goals. Let's make sure our blood pressure and cholesterol numbers are at the right at the right numbers. I use it as, again, leverage to help our patients understand what is going on in their own body. Thank you. That was a great review on heart disease and childhood cancer survivor. I want to thank Dr. Carrie Lenneman and Dr. Wendy Bartner uh, to join us today and give us kind of a very good review of the topic and uh, on our next podcast, uh, I want to make sure you don't miss that because we're going to talk about the late cardiac effects after stem cell or bone marrow transplant. So make sure not to miss it. Thank you very much. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.